How's everybody doing? Everybody doing all right? Awesome. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to E3. This is the third week in this series that we're calling uh, Origins. We're going to be talking uh, today about one of, uh, one of the most just amazing, uh, amazing books of the Bible, amazing stories of the Bible. And, and uh, it's been really just a treat for me to even study for it. But before we get there, I want to... Uh, I want to hear from you guys. I want you guys to answer a question and tell me a little bit about yourselves. And what I want to hear is some of you guys' first job. What was the first job you guys had? Just shout them. Cashier at McDonald's? A Wendy's? You guys can have like a battle royale. See what I did there? Royale is... Lifeguard? Awesome. What? Secretary and Whataburger. I thought you said Waterbringer. I was like, wow, that's all right. Bag boy, bus boy, any dishwasher? Okay. All right, so um, my first job, uh, my first job was at a, a sort of a regional department store in Texas. It was called Gibson's. It was like a precursor to Walmart, right? And so you know, you could come in and you get yourself some Campbell's soup and a pair of socks and swing by and pick up a gun on the way out. You know, was <laughs> one-stop shop. Um, I, was a, I was a stock boy, bagged on Sundays, I think we had, or Saturdays we had to bag. My second job was, was uh, at a place called Montgomery Wards. Anybody remember Montgomery Wards? We called it Monkey Wards because we were like crazy that way. Um, I mixed paint and sold paint in the hardware department. That was my second job. And I don't know if you guys remember, like, those early jobs that you get sort of in junior high or high school. You know, you have to fill out the job application. You get the application, and you have to carry it in, you know, find the manager, the person. Your palms are all sweaty because you're nervous. You have to talk to people, and you turn it in, and then you wait to hear back or whatever. And, um, but as, as, time, as times change, as you get a little bit older, when you get into college and beyond college, the, the way that you get a job changes, right? You don't fill out the application first anymore. You have to create a what? Resume, right? And so, um, you know, the first ones that you do as a you know, fresh college grad or whatever, you know, have to go through the trial of how do you make a resume? How do you get it all on one page? And how do you make it look presentable? Um, and, and I thought before we get too far into the day, I want to kind of just explore some resume options for you guys. So I went on the internet and I found some resumes. And because they're on the internet, they're real. So uh, I want to show you guys some of the resumes that, that I found. This is, this is the first one. This is not me, by the way. But Eric is looking for a job, and I, it's kind of hard to read, so I'm going to read it for you guys. Eric's objective, to claw my way to the top using any means necessary, but then to be a fair and just ruler and bring your company to new heights or whatever. Eric's personal attributes, cat-like reflexes, now you see me, meow you don't. Possible ESP, knows when to hold knows when to fold. <laughs> Kenny Rogers reference, check straight to the front of the line. Eric emits pleasant aroma, possible plural. Horse-like laugh, optional, thank you. Extremely proficient in Mario Kart for Super Nintendo. I know guys here 
who are that. Maybe they're Eric. Uh, Eric is not bad at sexy dancing. <laughs> Eric is 29 years old but has the facial hair of a 13-year-old. That's not me. So, uh, yeah, can eat a lot at one sitting. Oh, also, I can moonwalk quite well. Eric's experience. I'm quite experienced with the McDonald's menu. It's awesome. One time I rode a horse, but it bucked me off. I was injured and ended up gaining like 30 pounds, but then I shed that weight like a snakeskin. I have a very fast metabolism. I have enough knowledge to write an essay on pretty much any subject without researching it. Acne Lancer. Just sit with that for a second. And then after all that, he puts on there, he's a life coach. Education, he finished high school by the skin of his teeth, spent most of his time daydreaming out the window, but if you hire me, things will be different, I swear it. Winning resume. This guy, uh, this is before the resume, this is the cover letter. Everybody write a cover letter, that's how you get your resume read. This cover letter, I refer to the recent death of the technical manager at your company and hereby apply for the replacement of the deceased manager. <laughs> Each time I apply for a job, I get a reply that there's no vacancy. But in this case, I've caught you red-handed. <laughs> and you have no excuse because I even attended the funeral to be sure that he was truly dead before applying. It's a winner. And then I got one more that I, I can't even deal with this. My little resume. And uh, I, don't, I can't even speak to that. I, I just, like, what? So, you know, why, why spend some time on that just besides the fact that it's always good to laugh a little bit at Christmas? Uh, it's because of this. I want to plant in your idea, I want to plant in your head the idea that um, Matthew's first chapter, first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're taking this series, by the way, Matthew, the first chapter of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus, all right? It's, it's his ancestry, it's who he is. Um, and I want to I put in your head the idea that the genealogy that Matthew's, Matthew uses is essentially Jesus' resume for being the Messiah, the King. Um, and, and that's a very specific word for Jesus and for the people who lived when Jesus lived, Messiah. It meant anointed one. It meant leader. It meant king. It meant the person who was going to be in charge of God's people. And so Matthew lays out this genealogy that essentially is saying, here's why Jesus deserves to be king, because that's what a resume does at its essence. It says, here's why uh, Eric, if, if, that was, if I had a resume, here's why I deserve to be, back in the day, the worship leader of E3. You know, here are the things that qualify me for this job. And I think, as I read Matthew's genealogy, and we're going to talk about some of it uh, b before we get to Ruth, I think that Matthew is essentially saying, look, here's why you should listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 through Matthew chapter 28. Here's why he deserves to be the Messiah, all right? And, and here's the way Matthew starts his story. He says in Matthew verse, uh, chapter one, verse one, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. 
And it's interesting because he says, this is a record of the ancestors. The Greek actually says, this is a record of, the word is not actually ancestors. The Greek word there is Genesis. This is the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. And Genesis in Greek means origins. So that's kind of where we took the, the title. Not only are we talking about the book of Genesis in the first part of origins, now we're talking about the Genesis, the origins of Jesus. And Matthew says, this is it. This is the resume. This is why he deserves to have a hearing on being the Messiah in Matthew 2 through uh, 28. And so he lists a bunch of names, some of which we've already talked to. Then he gets to the end of the genealogy in, in verse 17, and he says this. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. So a couple of things just about this last verse. The first thing you notice is that he's throwing out this number 14 a lot, 14, 14. And scholars differ as to why he's emphasizing the number 14. You know, there's a symmetry about, about the genealogy that he wants to highlight. The one possibility, and this is just kind of interesting stuff, the one possibility has to do with a, a Hebrew tradition of assigning numbers to letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And they would use these number associations then to kind of point to possible allusions in the text. Now, Hebrew does not use vowels, okay? It's just consonants. And if you were to look at King David, now remember, David is like the, he looms larger than any other king in Israel's history. He is the prototypical king. The one guy you want to be like. If you're going to be a king or a Messiah, you want to be like David. David's name in Hebrew to us would just look like three letters, D-W-D, no vowels. Now, those letters traditionally have numbers, like I said, associated them in some line of Jewish thought. And the numbers are D has a number of four, W has a number of six. So it is four, six, four, which adds up to 14. And so given how important David is, there's one line of thought that says, well, what Matthew wants to do is he wants to identify this genealogy with the big king with David. So he uses 14 and he highlights 14. The other line of thought is simply this. 14 is simply, what, two times seven. Seven is a big number in the Bible. It's a big number for God's people. It's associated with completeness, with God. How many days of creation are there? Seven, right? And so the other line of thinking is it's like, well, uh, Matthew is, is drawing attention to this idea that, hey, 14, seven generations, seven generations, and then seven and seven more. It's, it's holy. It has something to do with God's work in the world. It has something to do with Genesis, right? But beyond that, uh, I think that if you just read verse 17, you can see what the most important aspects of Israel's history are to Matthew. And they're simply right there. Abraham, David, exile, Messiah. Like David or Matthew is saying, hey, all these genealogies, let me tell you the high points. It's Abraham, David, the exile, this catastrophic removal of God's people from their land, and then the Messiah. And I just want to throw out to you, if you really want to understand the context that Matthew's writing, you really want to understand what's important to a Jewish person in the first century when Jesus does his work, understand those four things. 
Abraham, David, exile, and the Messiah. Okay? And so if you read the genealogy, you would see a heavy emphasis on royalty, on the king, because the Messiah is a political leader. He's the leader of the people. And Matthew's agenda is to show you, look, this is why Jesus should be the Messiah. So you see a long list of kings in, in Matthew's genealogy. But then you also see some surprising people. We've already talked about a couple of them. First week of the series, Dan talked about this guy named Jacob, who's a very interesting person in the Bible. He's manipulative. He has a problem with telling the truth. He is a, he's a character that just uh, changes over time. He wrestles with God for crying out loud, and all he gets out of it is a messed up hip. It's pretty cool. We heard last week about this woman, Rahab, who's not even Jewish. She lives in Jericho, a town that's being conquered by the Jews. She shelters some soldiers, you know, and then advances God's story. And what's really crazy about Rahab? She is a what? Prostitute. So there's some surprises in Matthew's genealogy. He's saying, look, Jesus' resume for being a Messiah isn't just the comfortable, comfortable line items. There are some things on Jesus' resume you're like, whoa, well, maybe we should bring this guy in for an interview. I don't know. But he lays it all out there. Here's what it means to be the Messiah. And he lays out right after Rahab, actually, he mentions Ruth, this woman, Ruth which is actually the name of the, of the book of the Bible. And so we're going to take a look at this book, uh, Ruth, and we're going to do it a little bit differently in the sense that we're not going to drill down into too many specific scriptures. We're going to take a look at Ruth more from a conceptual level. What does Ruth and her story and her book mean to the Bible, to Jesus, and to us? How does Ruth prepare Jesus to be the Messiah? And I think she prepares him to be the Messiah in two vital, vital, vital ways. And I think then... It also prepares us to be the followers of the Messiah in two really, really important ways. So um, the book of Ruth is in the Old Testament, kind of towards the front. Um, and it falls between two pretty interesting books of the Bible for different reasons. Ruth occurs between Judges and 1 Samuel, all right? I don't know how much of you, the Old Testament you've read. Years back, we did a whole sermon series on the book of Judges. It was so depressing. Judges, I'm going to tell you, Judges is the most depressing book of the Bible to me. It's the whole story of God's people descending into madness. I nicknamed the book The Downward Spiral because that's what it is. God's people have no leaders. They have no, no compassionate, loving, godly leaders. And it's just the story of them descending into war and murder and intrigue to at the very last, they're actually killing each other. They're making war on each other, right? And the book ends with the fact that it keeps emphasizing over and over, in those days, there was no leaders in God's, in God's people. And that's how Judges ends. And it's kind of like, oh my gosh. Then 1 Samuel begins on the other side of Ruth. And 1 Samuel is the beginnings of the dynasty. It's the beginning of the political and national rule of, of, of David and of a guy before him, Saul. So Samuel is a, is a judge and a prophet, and he's the one who finds Saul, names him, anoints him king. Saul kind of goes off the rails after a while, and then David comes up. It's a big book full of battles as well. So on one hand, you've got judges, just ick. And in 1 Samuel, it's better, but it's this story of political maneuvering and kings and, and national initiatives. 
And in the middle, you have this book that's four chapters long. And it's about a family. In particular, it's about a couple of women and kind of what they go through when they experience this, this radical upheaval in their lives. And it's also the story about when God's people get it right. And I think it's so interesting the way it's positioned. It's like a little breath of fresh air. You read Judges and you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can go on. Is this what it means to be God's people? And then you get these four chapters, just a tiny little story, just a tiny little story. In fact, I'll tell you this, uh, God's, God doesn't even uh, appear directly in the story. He doesn't speak in Ruth. It's a story of people living their everyday lives. And at the end of it, we find out something surprising and the story picks up again in 1 Samuel. So it starts off this way. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and he went to live in the country of Moab. Now Moab is outside of the borders of Israel. These are not where God's people live. He took his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, which is the tri tribe they were from, from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. Just keep that phrase in, in mind, Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Mahlon and Kilion died. And this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Um, so the first thing you know, that we need to, to note is, is just that this woman goes through something really traumatic, right? Um, I was just sitting down with, with a friend Friday, and, and he was telling me about uh, he had a, a sister, and, and her sister was, um, I can't remember if, if, uh, if she was engaged or if she had just been married, and her husband was deployed to Iraq and was, and was killed in action. And it just up, and it just turned, uh, that sudden loss just turns a family upside down. Traumatic loss just changes everything for a family. And you don't just pick up two weeks later and go, okay, we're okay now, right? He talked about how that, that trauma had, had sent ripples through his family for years. And they're still trying to unpack like that loss, right? Well, if that's what happens in the 21st century, what do you think it's like to go through that in the, in the ancient world? where there's no social support, right? And this woman loses her husband, and then she loses her two sons. That's a lot to go through, is it not? So she, in, in a very short period of time, loses all of her security in the world. She is vulnerable and exposed, and so are her daughters-in-law. That's where we're at in the story. It's a story about people who are not uh, existing in the safety and the security of affluence or uh, in, a, in a place where they can depend on, on, on the society to take care of them, okay? It's a story of, of vulnerable people. Now, the, the cool thing about Ruth is that it's such a tiny story. There's, there's just a really handful of characters, and most of them we've, we've met already. We have Elimelech, uh, the husband, he never even acts really in the story. He's just there and then he's gone. Naomi, uh, she has two sons, but then her two sons marry uh, Ruth and Orpah, these Moabite women. And then we find out later there's a guy named Boaz that they run into who's actually related to the family. 
And so the story, I'm just going to summarize it. The story is such that um, these women are together. They're trying to survive. And Naomi does this amazing thing because in that culture, um, for better or for worse, the way that you had security was you were married. And Naomi looks and she's like, my husband's dead. My sons are dead. I've got these two daughters-in-law. And she says to the daughters, look, I set you free. Go find a husband. Go find a place because I can't provide for you. And I don't want to be responsible for, like, for us all going down. So she says, leave me. And Orpah, through some tears, she actually says, okay, I'll, I'll leave you. But then Ruth does the most unexpected thing. And she steps up to her mother-in-law. She says, I'm not leaving you. And maybe you've heard this. She says, where you go, I will go. And your people will be my people. She says, I will do this. If you die, I will be there with you too. It's an incredible statement of loyalty. She commits to Naomi in a moment of vulnerability. And so they, they leave uh, eventually Moab, they come back to Bethlehem and they meet this guy named Boaz who they find out later is actually part of their extended family. And, and Ruth uh, sees him and she sees he's a farmer and he has, he has crops and he has food and they need food because they don't have people to provide for them. So she begins to just go through the field where the workers have left food on the ground and she takes it. And this is actually a law in, in, in Israel. You're supposed to leave things for workers. You don't take all your crops. You leave stuff for the people who need it more than you do. So she does that. And Boaz, because Boaz is a man and Ruth's a woman and she's kind of attractive. He's like, hey, who's, who's that? And they say, oh, they, they make these introductions. And, and Boaz does this crazy thing and he goes to Ruth and he says, look, take, take everything you need. And he tells his workers, do not accost this woman. Don't don't uh, be mean to her. Don't accost her sexually. She's protected. Make sure that there's food for her to eat. And he does that. This crazy act of compassion. And then uh, Naomi kind of sees this and she's like, hey, I can maybe a little some love, love connection here. And uh, they come together and they get married. It's a crazy thing. And then the book ends this way. Uh, I'm going to pick up in, in chapter 4. They have a baby, um, Ruth and Boaz do. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. She lost her sons, right? The neighbor women explained, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David, the king that's to come. And so in this book that God never speaks obviously and, and these people who are just making these little decisions on their lives of how to survive and how to be good to one another, God advances his story in a radical way that leads first to the greatest king Israel has ever known and eventually to the very Messiah. That's pretty crazy. At the center of, of, of Judaism and at the center of the book of Ruth is, is a concept and a word, a Hebrew word, uh, that is hesed. Anybody ever heard this word? Hesed. Hesed is, is one of these words that if you get and you understand hesed, you can understand an awful lot about God's people in Judaism. It can't be defined with one English word. But you might have heard it translated as loving kindness. 
You might have heard it as understood or as steadfast love, compassion, loyalty, kindness. And this is the way God describes his love for us. He says, I have loved you with a steadfast love. God's love is loyal. It is compassionate. It does not relent. It does not abandon, right? If you understand this, you understand an awful lot about the nature of the God that I'm running after and the God that Ruth and Boaz knew. But said is not just meant to be this thing. Because God's expectation for his people, and it's described in the Old Testament, is that that love is also meant to be shared this way. Hesed is something that is meant to be lived out between us. We are expected by God to be loyal to one another, to be committed, to be compassionate, to be steadfast, to treat each other gently. And that's what you see lived out in the book of Ruth. Between who? Moabite women. Ruth makes this commitment to Naomi. Naomi, I'll go with you. That's Hesed. Boaz looks at Ruth and he says, there's a woman, she needs food. Sure, she's attractive, but she needs food. So let me make sure she's provided for. He is compassionate towards her. Now here's the surprise. If you were to flip back to the book of Deuteronomy, there's, a, there's a, a passage, a verse there that makes this a little bit shocking to a, to a Jewish reader and shocking to Jesus and his genealogy. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for 10 generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So in Deuteronomy, there's this verse that says, look, if you're from Moab, I'm not sure if you're going to be down with this God project. And it has to do with when, uh, when God's people were on the run from Egypt. Uh, Moab and Ammon, don't, they don't treat them very well. And so this is kind of a little bit of a, well, if, if you're going to be mean to us, we're going to be mean to you right back. So it says, no, no person from Moab. Well, what's the thing? Where's Ruth from? Moab. And just so you know, uh, there are times in, Egypt, in Israel's history where they live this out more than others. There's, there, it's kind of ugly. But in the book of Ezra, and the book of Nehemiah, they, they take this verse to heart. And they're rebuilding Jerusalem. At one point, the leaders of God's people, they say, oh, hey, we're encountering some problems. There's, there's some strife in the land. We need to figure out why this is. Hey, is anybody married to any Moabite people? And some guys raise their hand and they go, get yourself away from them. It's kind of ugly to me. And it says a lot of the guys, they leave. They leave their families. They say, get rid of the pagans in your midst. Whew. But God's story is not just about that because in Ruth, you have the whole central concept of Judaism, hesed, steadfast love, commitment, and loyalty being lived out by who? A Moabite woman. Who else lives out Hesed in the book of Ruth? How about Boaz? Is he compassionate? Yeah. The, the book of Ruth is an amazing story of what it means to be, to see God at work, to see the compassionate, steadfast love in people who are on the outside. 
who you can look at and go like, whoa, they don't look like they would be inside of God's operation. And yet you see them displaying the evidence of God's work in the world. What do you do with that? And then it's also, like I said, the story of what do you do when, when God doesn't speak in the pages of Ruth? What do you do when life is just life? When you don't live on the mountaintop spiritual experiences, you're like, all I just got to do is get up and go to work today. Is God still at work? Here's the way I would summarize it. There are two questions I think that, that, that Ruth uh, speaks to me and speaks to us. And the first question is this, what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to have hesed quality about you? Who is righteous? Is it only the people inside E3 at 11 a.m.? And how do I treat the outsiders? Because Ruth is on the outside according to the book of Deuteronomy. Yet some surprising things happen. The second question that the book of Ruth tells me is, is God at work when I can't obviously see him working? Anybody have an area of your life where you're just like, well, I think God is kind of working this 80% of my life, but this 20% over here seems pretty boring or maybe even hard. What do you do when you have that spot in your life that's hard or when you have that time in your life when your whole life seems hard? Is God working then? Because Ruth and Naomi, they're not in a comfortable place. Is God at work? So as we kind of like wrap this thing up and, and talk about how this might play itself out, how does Ruth's story contribute to Jesus' resume? All right? I was thinking about this this week, and I was using my imagination because that's what I do sometimes. And I started to wonder, I wonder if Jesus knew his ancestry. You know, in my family, um, we don't know an awful lot about some of our ancestors um, but there's some folks, you know, that I've, over time, I don't know if your family's like this, where my, I'll get an email from an uncle and they're like, you know, Uncle Jim just found out that we're related to so-and-so, you know, and it, for me, it's been Blackbeard, you know, I got an uncle who's convinced that we're related to Blackbeard, whatever, convinced that they're related to Sir Isaac Newton, I'm like, great, I'm awful at science, you know, and, and over time, like, and, and I kind of get into it too, like, here's who you are, Eric, here's what your ancestors have done. You know, and I think it's kind of cool. And I wonder, like, did Jesus' parents ever sit him down and say, sit down, boy. Here's, here's, here's who you come from. And they said, Jesus, you come, from, you come from Rahab. And they say, and they said, you, you come from these great kings, right? But you come from some crazy people, too. Anybody got crazy people in there? In the, I know I do, yes. Come on. I wonder if Jesus knew. And I think you can make a case that he did because of the way he ran his ministry. Because I think Ruth plays out in his ministry pretty profoundly. Here's what I mean by that. In the book of Luke, uh, Jesus uh, comes out of this 40-day temptation and trial with the devil. And the first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue, his church. And in Luke 4, he sits down, he rolls open a scroll, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, 
that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Can I get an amen? That part wasn't in the scriptures, but I think if Jesus asked for an amen, you'd be like, amen. And then he says to the people sitting there, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Outsiders. Captives? Check. Poor? Check. Blind? Check. Jesus is like, let me tell you who this thing is going to be about. It's going to be about the people on the outside. The people on the marginalized. Yes, it's going to be about insiders too because you guys need to hear this. But Jesus is like, my kingdom is not going to be an insider kingdom. My ministry is not going to be inside the box ministry because that's not the way he works. And then he lives it out. Check out this list of the people that Jesus interacts with. Outsiders and who he looks for and displays said love to. Tax collectors, people that were despised in their community because they were collecting money for the enemy. Criminals, prostitutes, Samaritans, ethnic outsiders, despised people, possessed pagans, enemy soldiers who were occupying their country. And there are times when Jesus says, you know what? I see more faith in this Roman soldier than I see in some of my own people. Jesus understands that, that God's love is not just shown to outsiders, but you can see it in outsiders. And sometimes they're the ones who give the love back to the insiders. And I think he knew that because Ruth. You see, Jesus, uh, Jesus didn't have an inside the box ministry because for Jesus there was no box. He's like, everybody gets in. What about the other question? What about, what about uh, when there's not just the healings? I mean, Jesus does so many spectacular things. He heals people. He exercises demons. He sees crazy things happen. But you know what also he probably did a lot of? This. Just walking around. Because that's the way you got around in the first century. And do you think that Jesus, I don't think that Jesus was like, okay, this is the spiritual time. We'll do some healings over here. But when we're walking, I don't think Jesus lived his life that way. I think Jesus knew that an awful lot of the spiritual life looks an awful lot like the everyday life. And that every moment is pregnant with profound spiritual potential. There is no normalcy. Because you gotta remember the book of Ruth like these were just women and men making positive everyday life choices that lead to the birth of King David and later to Jesus. What could God be bringing to light in your life right now that just looks like you making the next right decision? And you're like, well, this isn't spiritual. There is no such thing as not spiritual. And how about the other side of it, going even further? What about when life isn't just boring but hard? Do you think Jesus knows that God's at work in those times too? I think he does. You see, to me, it's critical to my understanding of Jesus that I know that he had 
faith. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. There's a criminal beside him. This criminal just says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And I don't know if you know the story, but Jesus looks at him and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because I think Jesus knew, look, even in the hardest of hard times, my God has not abandoned me. That pain was real on the cross. Those sweat, that drops of blood that poured out of him in Gethsemane were real drops of blood. But Jesus had the faith that even in the worst of times, God ain't done yet. There's more. There's more. There's more. And you can draw a line from Ruth that just tells the story of everyday people living their everyday lives, that God is advancing his story one little person, one little decision at a time. What might he want to do in your life through just the next right decision? So as I bring this thing into my life, and what I was wrestling through this week, I, I, I pointed these questions towards myself. So the question is simply to me is this, how do I treat the outsiders in my life? How do I treat the marginalized? Do I treat some people like those are the people that God moves through and those are the people I listen to and those are the people I pay more attention to and those are the people that are okay? Or do I allow myself to entertain the fact that outsiders might show me more of God's love than I am willing to show them? And then the second question is, uh, is there anywhere in my life um, that I'm tempted to give up on the idea that God's working in it? Is there any place that I'm tempted to say, he's not here because it's too boring or it's too hard? Because the story of Ruth says that, man, even when God seems like he's absent, he's not. That, that song we sang earlier, he's not giving up on us. He won't. He will not abandon. And all we have to do is be willing to say, God, you're here. What can I learn from this? And how can I make the next right decision? Because who knows what this is going to lead to. I imagine life got really hard for, for Naomi and Ruth. And it's so easy to just give up and opt out of doing the next right thing, but they didn't. Even when the next right thing was boring or difficult, they just did it in a future that they could not even envision took root. I think that's what was in Jesus' resume. I think that's why Ruth prepared him to be the Messiah that he was going to be, a Messiah that was oriented not just to the insiders, but the outsiders, and a Messiah that said, look, God's at work all the time, not just in the good times. And because that's the way it prepared him, I feel like that's the way it's, he's trying to prepare me the life he's calling me to, and the life he's calling you to. Amen? Let's stand for closing prayer.